everyone. Welcome to TripCast 360, the podcast of lively banter about travel, tourism, and entertainment. I'm your co-host, David Cumberbatch, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, the man, Michael Gordon Bennett. Michael, tell our audience how excited we are about having our guest today. Uh, excited, yes. Subject matter, not so much, but it has to be covered. We, li- <laughs> we live in a COVID world. And our guest is listening in quietly until I intro her. But uh, just to let you know, doctor, that we actually, the idea for this show actually came from a dear friend of mine. He's got three college, he's got three daughters. The oldest one has already graduated from college, but the two younger girls have to leave for a college, one to New York, one to Florida. They all have to report for in-person club um, schooling uh, sometime during the month of August, and he is not comfortable putting them on a plane. So he's now debating whether he wants to drive them or, you know, which means he'd have to go to New York. I think the New York one starts first and then go to Florida. He's also a pilot himself, so he can get on a little two-seater and fly his girls there, which he's done many times before, but he's worried. And then he's also worried about what he's going to get once they get to the university. I mean, they're both living in dorms. I mean, I, I don't know how this goes. So that was the the genesis of why we wanted to talk to you and your great article in the conversation uh, okay. that I that we're going to discuss. Um, before we get started with today's show, a couple housekeeping notes. Uh, as you know, we like to have what we call the voiceless travelers Um share their travel experiences with us. So uh, you can always uh, send your stories to us at contact at tripcast360.com. And it could be anything. It could be some great vacation you had, a little bit of fun. It could even be something that maybe didn't turn out so much fun that you maybe had a learning experience from that we can actually get on our broadcast. And who knows, you may be a guest on our show just as well. Uh, you can also listen to our podcast and all your favorite podcasting outlets, Apple, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and all the others out there. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And our website, tripcast360.com. And if you're so inclined, in about two weeks, we're going to start taking email signups for our newsletter. And embedded in that newsletter will not only be a synopsis of all of our podcasts, but we're also looking to... Uh, make arrangements with several travel providers for travel deals and things of that nature. So uh, uh, please follow us, please subscribe, share with your friends, do all that other good stuff that we always do to get you to tune in. Now, uh, as uh, I alluded to earlier, our guest today is Dr. Janet Bednarik. She's a professor and former chair of the Department of History at the University of Dayton in Ohio. Before coming to Dayton, she worked three years as a historian with the United States Air Force at Bowling Air Force Base, the Pentagon, and Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, which is also in Ohio. Since coming to the University of Dayton in 1992, she has combined her original professional training as an urban historian with her on-the-job training as an aviation historian. She currently works on the history of airports in the United States, examining them as pieces of the urban transportation infrastructure, and also looks at the relationship between airports and city planning. She teaches courses in both urban and aviation history, and uh, she also wrote this fantastic article in the conversation, which you're going to hear us discuss. And the title of that article is called Airlines Got Travelers Comfortable About Flying Again Once Before, But 9-11 and a Virus Are a Lot Different. 
Dr. Bitnerick, welcome to Dripcast 360. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm intrigued by that recent article. I actually, you know, I'm a news person. So I, I checked for my news articles every day and I saw this article and it really captured my imagination. Tell us about yourself, your work and what drives you. I'm an historian, so um, I, I study the past mostly, but um, I like to to think that my work also informs the present. And what really drives me is airports. <laughs> I've become very fascinated with the history of airports over the last 20 to 30 years. Um, as you said in my introduction, I was trained as an urban historian, but I went to work for the Air Force um, and picked up military aviation there. Um, I'm also a general aviation pilot, and so I, I have this interest in aviation. And I, when I came to Dayton, which is the home of the Wright brothers, I was looking to see uh, where these two interests could come together and where they come together is the airport. And very surprising to me, I found that not much work had been done on the history of airports in the United States. So I've spent a good deal of my time since coming to Dayton studying the history of airports and the uh, air transportation network in the United States. Well, as the um, the thing that's dominating the news cycle of late, as it should, is the pandemic. And you have, in your story, you had mentioned that we'd survive SARS and MERS, but we're dealing with a different animal this time because those two viruses were relatively well contained. They didn't seem to have the... Um, uh, air contagion, if you will, that allowed them to be transferred to others so easily. COVID is different. And uh, I don't know where we're going with this because as you alluded to also in your article, when it came to 9-11, we already had infrastructure in place to deal with you know, terrorism threats with you know, infrastructure uh, screenings and, and x-rays and things like that. Mm-hmm. What do you see with COVID? I mean, how are we going to work our way out of this? That is the $64,000 question. <laughs> yeah. I was asked, how does this compare to, you know, anything we've experienced in the past? And in a lot of ways, it doesn't. You know, I thought about 9-11 and how, uh, you know, air traffic essentially stopped in the United States um, after those after those planes crashed into the World Trade Center and to the Pentagon in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. I mean, within hours, um, airplanes were out of the sky, people were terrified, but we, meaning the the airline industry, the U.S. government, um, there was experience with dealing with terrorist attacks in the past, having to do with aviation, um, and there was a playbook to, to use, you know, screening passengers, um, metal detectors, explosives detecting uh, kind of things, and they, they could apply them and could use those to convince people to get back onto airplanes. This virus, um, we don't have immediate detection of it. People can be asymptomatic. Um, so you could do all the temperature screening you want, but um, people with the virus can get onto an airplane. We Airplanes themselves are closed environments, and um, even with the, the kind of um, air scrubbers and, and whatever they have on there, it is very, very hard to social distance uh, on an airplane. It's just, it's, it's very, very different. 
Um, so the lessons that got us back flying relatively quickly after 9-11 just simply don't apply here. So I kept thinking, well, is there anything else? And so I went back to World War II. And in World War II, the military came in. They bought up half of all the commercial airliners in the United States. Um, a third of their personnel were drafted into the military. Um, so, you know, the, the, the airline industry contracted in a lot of ways, but the industry actually grew during World War II. Right. Um, load factors went from an average of 43% to 84% very quickly. They were setting passenger numbers uh, records by 44 and 45. People needed to travel at that time. And even though the airlines themselves were smaller, they were carrying more and more people because they were flying essentially always full airplanes during that time. People don't want to get onto a very full airplane uh, when there's a pandemic. Um, they want to get onto as empty an airplane as possible. And so what some of the answers might be to deal with the pandemic, you know, middle seats open, every other row, all of those kinds of things, they might make people feel a little better about flying, but they are financially unsustainable for the airlines. So there, there just simply isn't a good lesson from history that they could apply to this situation because it's, it's just very, very different from any of the major challenges that the airline industry has faced in the past. Airlines have been complaining for years that they operate in very thin margins. Mm -hmm. um, if that middle seat is eliminated, that is revenue that the airline is losing. Right. At the same time, airlines still have to fly. Now, should airlines be doing more? Do you think airlines should be doing more, even operating at small margins at an, at an additional expense to them? What do you think they should be doing at this time? Well, I think they should be getting more help from Washington, D.C., honestly, um, because right now part of the issue is that it's been left up to individual airlines to decide how they're going to respond to this. And so, for example, with the issue of masks, um, some airlines um, have mandated masks. You cannot get on their airplanes without masks. Others have not. Um, and, and that plays a role in um, passenger comfort, passenger, you know, feeling of, of, of being able to get onto those airplanes. Um, there was a story the other day about Ted Cruz getting on an airplane and refusing to wear a mask. Yeah, I saw that. Um, <laughs> for, for the hoi polloi, for the rest of us, um, on certain airlines, that would get us banned for life. Um, so there, there's, there's not consistent um, messaging from Washington, D.C. about any of this, but the airlines did get help with the CARES Act to help them not lay off anybody, um, at least until October 1st. But that money runs out October 1st, and all of them are talking about furloughs and layoffs and, and, and cuts and all of that if flying, you know, the flying public doesn't come back. 
and I just don't see the flying public coming back. Uh, not until the the um, COVID is under or, or the coronavirus is under control. And right now it's not. Case numbers are, are, are going up. We have all of these hotspots. Um, these are things that the airlines cannot control. They absolutely cannot control. They, they can give a sense of control to passengers when it comes to terrorists and keeping them off. You know, you, you took off your shoes, you've been scanned. We, we, uh, we have no fly list. We have all this kind of stuff. We can give you some confidence. But they, they do not have the control to say the coronavirus is not on this flight. They just cannot do that, not, not in any way, shape, or form. Um, and so unless Washington, D.C. steps in and gives the airlines the financial aid that they would need to fly you know, a third or a half empty at all times um, to get at least some people on air, essential travel going. I, I just, I really don't know what's going to happen this fall. Um, air travel is essential. There are some people who absolutely need to, to fly, to, to move around. But on the other hand, the, they are companies, they are private companies. Um, they have to stay in business. And they cannot sustain losses for long periods of time. Yeah. I, um, I actually have flown once since um, coronavirus um, jumped to the um, forefront of the uh, um, conscience of, uh, of America. And I flew a 45 minute flight from Los Angeles to Las Vegas. And at the time, I didn't realize the Southwest Airlines, which was the airline I chose, had that middle seat empty. So I was thankful for that once I got to the airport. Um, but the fear factor was real. I stayed home for two weeks just as a precaution, and I was thankful for the mask. But my issue wasn't with Southwest Airlines. My issue was with the airport itself, because when I got to the gate and I noticed I looked at the departure board and there were 18 flights within a two hour time frame of my departure from LAX. So what's that mean? You're sitting at the gate waiting and there's like 20 gates around you and all these people all of a sudden converging, whether they're half full or not. Yeah. From from a, a urban planning and airport planning perspective at the macro level, is there anything that the airports could do to help mitigate some of that risk? I don't see it. I, I, that's, that's why I'm asking the question because I, I honestly, the way that the you know, airports are configured now, yeah, there's just no way around it. And scheduling, obviously Southwest, it didn't seem to help with scheduling because there were still people jammed into the terminal. Yeah. Well, the scheduling is largely the airlines doing. They, they schedule their flights and they control gates at airports. So, but that said, there is a lot of conversation in the airport world about what they can do to make passengers feel better. And they could spread the gates out. They could, you know, just say every other gate is going to be used. Now, I, I, that's a, they, they'll have to negotiate with the airlines, though, because the airlines you know, have their specific gates at the airport that they use. It's got all their signage. It's got their, their logos on it. Not to, mit, not to mention the fact that they actually pay for that. They pay for that. Exactly. So there would have to be negotiation with the airlines to kind of spread people out 
to available real estate at the airport so that um, you didn't have a lot of people converging when, say, Southwest or United or Delta or whatever. Imagine what Atlanta's like. Um, yeah, with Delta. Um, all come, going from one concourse or whatever. Right. Um, th- they, they could do that. Now, they have mandated masks for their employees. They put hand sanitizers up there. They're, they're also pushing much faster to go with touchless technology. Face facial recognition, um, scanning things, uh, things that you you would might see at some larger uh, overseas international airports where you walk up and they scan your face, mm-hmm. um, yeah, with your passport and whatnot. Um, more that kind of identification, keeping lots of security lines open. They the 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 parts of the, the it's the bottleneck. Nobody wants to stand in line, six foot distance or not, in a security line. So they've got to keep, uh, and but that's the federal government. So you know, make sure TSA is fully staffed, um, so that even with reduced passenger loads, there are never lines. Uh, that's got to happen. And then again, spreading things out um, among available real estate, so that you don't have people crowded around a few gates for a you know a particular airline but again it the the airports can't do that by fiat um they've got to kind of um negotiate with with the air airlines themselves uh to do that um but they are they are trying to think about things like that to to make people feel more secure about being there you know less high high touch areas um, the cleaning bots that run back and forth. I've, I've seen lots of stories about um, these these robots that they have that come yeah. in and yeah. things and using UV light um, to to kill the virus and so on. But any anything within an airport that's going to cause a bottleneck, that's going to cause people to have to come together, they're going to have to figure out ways around because people just are not comfortable suddenly being among a lot of other people. Yeah, you know, air, airport bottlenecks and trans, the transportation corridor that is the airport has had issues with bottlenecks for years and the security yeah. lines and things like that. I saw something and I, I think it was Montreal. Um, um, I could be wrong about the city, but it is a Canadian city where they actually have you scheduled for going through security. You call in from your cell phone with an app or something, and they schedule them. If you show up too early, you have to wait. <laughs> that would be another thing to do, yeah, is to now make appointments to go through um, TSA. Right. Um, and instead of, you know, we've all been trained to show up an hour before our flight. Well, if everybody on that airplane shows up an hour before their flight, then everybody on that airplane is going through security at the same time. Right. If we space that out even by five or 10 minutes a piece that that could help things how effective is it eliminating that middle seat the distance between the window and the aisle i don't know i'll say maybe seven feet or so how effective is that i've always been curious about well the, uh, mit apparently just did a study of that um and it has effectiveness um, it's not perfect, but it, it has effectiveness. 
especially if everybody on the airplane is wearing masks. Um, Just any kind of separation is good. And if you, I've seen this with um, buildings having to deal with elevators. Um, If everybody's wearing a mask and everybody is facing in the same direction, then the, the, it, it inhibits the spread of the virus. It doesn't stop it, but it inhibits the spread of the virus. So just having some kind of separation, keeping that middle seat open has some effectiveness in um, lessening transmission of the virus. My, my girlfriend didn't want to sit next to me anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that may be for some other reason. It has nothing to do with COVID. <laughs> um, uh, this is going to sound like a question out of left field, but I kind of have to ask it, and it has to do with infrastructure and urban planning. Okay. Would the United States is woefully behind when it comes to high-speed rail? Yeah. And I'm wondering if there is a sweet spot between increasing high-speed rail capabilities in this country and diminishing the amount of air travel that we actually need domestically. And I say that because, you know, if I go to like to Germany, I think they have two national carriers. That's it. We're the only one, only country on the planet that has 4,000 airline carriers. And and I'm wondering if... I don't know if it would help in COVID, so to speak, but at, at least on some urban planning level, just to diminish what the you know the number of airlines that we have, and maybe that would help spread out some passengers as well. I am also a big fan of high-speed rail. Um, there are certain corridors in the United States where that makes a tremendous amount of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, the Northeast Corridor, for example, the Bowash Corridor um, between Boston and Washington, D.C. Right. Um, the... Uh, LA to San Francisco, yep. in, in, uh, but also, um, say, Chicago to uh, Pittsburgh or, or Philadelphia, mm-hmm. um, Northeast, where the distances get greater, it, uh, it, it'll be a harder sell, right. like between Dallas and Las Vegas uh, across that area. But yeah, there are definitely corridors of high population density where um, high-speed rail makes a lot of sense, a tremendous lot of sense. Um, And that that would cut down on um, certainly congestion issues that uh, airports in those areas, you know, LAX, San Francisco, they all are faced when we get back to normal, <laughs> when we get back to flying again, um, you know, air, con- air, air uh, space congestion and congestion on the ground on the airport are big issues. Expanding airports is politically extraordinarily difficult in this country. There's only so far that you can push the technology to allow more airplanes to land in the same amount of space. Right. So offloading, as it were, some of that traffic um, in some of these high-density corridors from air to high-speed rail. And it would have to be high-speed. It'd have to be, you know, those bullet train kind of things. Makes tremendous amount of sense. Not only, um, you know, uh, for urban, uh, because it would actually take you, these things could go right into the city. So it, it could then connect to mass transit in the cities to get people around. Um, so environmentally, it makes more sense too. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a big 
proponent of more high-speed rail in this country. That'd yeah. be wonderful. Yeah, I, I've never understood why we don't have more. Well, I don't want to say that I do understand why, you know, political influence in Washington mm-hmm. and lobbyists and paying dollars to keep the airlines going as opposed to investing in high-speed rail is is big business for somebody. Uh, so I, I understand why we don't have it. But you're right. I, I look at the corridor from San Diego to San Francisco. And I know in California, uh, they are actually building a high-speed rail system from the Bay Area to Los Angeles at a $1 billion a mile price tag. That makes absolutely no sense to me. I can't fathom that for the 385 miles between the two cities. And I I, I keep asking myself, why is this so prohibitive? especially in the flat areas. I'm talking about the desert areas of Southern California from um, once you leave the Bay Area down to just before you bring the LA Basin. That's flat. That's desert land. There's nothing that you really have to do. You don't have to bore through mountains or anything like that like they do in China. Why does it cost so much? I wish I knew. Uh, That just seems like an insane amount of money, Uh, except, you know, Real estate is everything in California. True. <laughs> um, so the land prices are, are and, and I'm, I'm guessing that it's, it's not each and every mile is going to cost a billion dollars. There are some, say, within the urban areas mm-hmm. uh, that are going to cost multi-billion dollars because of the land costs, because of the, the uh, mitigation that they're going to have to do. Um, there's going to be noise issues associated with high-speed rail. Right. Um, that dealing with all of that, you know, out in the flat desert, I mean, technically, it's not going to cost a billion, but over the full length of it, if you average it out, yeah, it's going to cost a billion dollars a mile. Wow. Um, wow. Talking about needing a reallocation of resources because, yeah. you know, it, it, you know, I always but it could con- operate for, for a hundred years. Yeah, it really could. You know, and I always look at emerging companies and I don't want to call China an emerging company or country, but for the purposes of high-speed rail, they are. And for the purposes of people movers around where they don't have to depend on airlines. And I'm just looking at the United States saying, we are just so far behind a lot of the countries around the world, including the Europeans. China is not the only one. We're behind everybody. Yeah, Europe in particular, uh, Japan with high-speed rail, uh, yeah. the, the bullet trains. Um, yeah, it, it, I, it's one of those things is, why don't we have it in our country? And it's, it's politics and it's being a 50 state United States right. rather than a unit, more unitary na- nation state. Right. I mean, it's a lot of things. And yeah. yeah. You, you're not the communist dictator who can order something to happen and everybody just falls in line. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. The industry has been true. SARS, They've been through MERS, they've been through 9-11, even though 9-11 is a bit different. Is there anything that the industry could have done different to sort of ease the pain that we're going through right now in terms of traveling? I'm not sure, uh, because again, COVID is a different animal. Um, Highly infectious, easily transmitted, um, unlike SARS, unlike MERS, and MERS in particular. But I I mean, just think of how terrified people were with Ebola, which is also not 
can you know terribly contagious in in a lot of ways um so i'm not sure that they could done anything aside from maybe when cases were low putting in the mask mandate immediately but we didn't know enough about sars or excuse me know enough about covid uh or the coronavirus to know that masks would have the kind of efficacy that they do now. Right. Um, and then we have the whole confusion versus the N95 masks, which were in such short supply that the, the healthcare people needed. So they were urging people, don't go out and buy masks because the healthcare people use it. But these cloth masks would work just as well, you know, for everyday use in terms of keeping down virus transmissions and, yeah, uh, I just, I, I don't know, beyond a, a bit at the beginning, when case the caseload was still low, and if we had actually flattened the curve and, and pushed the curve down, the way they have in Europe, the way they have in Canada, um, the way they have in South Korea, there, it might be a difference. Right. But again, it's out of the control of the airline industry in a lot of ways. I'm thinking more about lobbying efforts, uh, reaching out to Congress uh, for s- simple things like um, those trays that you mentioned earlier, um, using the UV technology. Maybe those trays, as they go through, they go through on a conveyor belt, they get... Uh, they get sanitized and they come back to the next passenger in terms of the contact less technology. That's what I'm thinking more of, of, uh, efforts that could have been made. I don't know if any efforts were made. I'm just curious about that. Well, um, again, the, the whole contact less, the technology, the AI and things, this is, again, it's the United States catching up with the rest of the world. (laughs) <laughs> the rest of the world have been moving that way. Asian airports, European airports, Middle Eastern airports have been moving in that way. Um, the, the, the issue is here in the United States, airports are locally owned and operated. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so each and every local airport owner and manager would have to do this. All right. And what makes sense for LAX, uh, LaGuardia, JFK, Hartsfield, Jackson, uh, DFW may not make sense for Minot, North Dakota, Um, or, you know, um, Fargo. I I don't want to pick on the Dakotas here, but (laughs) (laughs) Um, Eau Claire, Wisconsin, okay, which also has a a lovely little airport. Um, That kind of thing doesn't make sense there. Yeah. Um, Whereas... What we, what we often compare our airports to are these national airports in these other countries that are, you know, the national government, they are the gateway airports, right. all right, often owned and operated by the national governments there, or at least um, uh, that's where the national government focuses their attention because that is the, the, their window on the world. That's, mm-hmm. you know, when you go to China, you fly into Beijing uh, for the most part Um, or you fly into um, when you fly into Abu Dhabi you fly into one airport all right so um, a lot of of, um, 
resources are are concentrated there because that then becomes the first image of that country to the international traveler. In the United States, if you fly to the United States, there's any number of airports that you can fly to. All right. There's not one that's national, although we used to call Washington our national airport. Now it's Reagan. Reagan, national, yeah. <laughs> national airport. Um, but um, there, there's no one. There's no one that that um, has any better connection to the federal government than any others, particularly since the Washington, D.C. airports are now leased out to a local, local. Um, authority there. Yeah. Um, and so uh, it, it's just the, the political economy of airports is so different in the United States um, that um, we are always playing a game of catch up with the rest of the world. The COVID uh, crisis is actually pushing airports uh, and more airports to move in those directions faster than they would have otherwise. Because, you know, a lot of people in the United States, when they travel, they travel domestically, right? True, yeah. They're not comparing these airports to the airport in Saudi or the, um, you know, the airport in in Beijing. Uh, they're, they're comparing it to where they took off from. So um, it's the international travelers that drive those other airports. But um, so... But I think that the, the COVID is going to push at least the biggest airports um, that want to continue to have international travelers. Um, if they're going to have confidence to come to the United States, um, they're going to want to see this kind of technology now. Uh, they don't want to have the bottlenecks. And they, even when, when we're not worried about the virus, mm -hmm. uh, they're not going to want to have those bottlenecks and, and the inconveniences that come without having you know, a lot of the AI and the touchless technology and the, you know, the faster uh, check-in and, and through customs and all of that kind of thing that you see in many uh, international airports around the world. Why do we always have to react? Uh, we've got the largest economy in the world. We are supposed to have the best systems in the world. Why, why is it that we must always react as opposed to being proactive and pushing, uh, I was going to say pushing agendas forward, but uh, agendas vary. Yeah. Well, again, it's um, when it comes down to it, every airport is local. Yeah. People were not going to stop flying to New York because they didn't like the airports because they wanted to fly to New York. <laughs> people aren't going to, people wouldn't stop flying to LA because of the airports are going to fly to LA. All right. That's okay. part of it. Okay. Um, people may not fly to, um, I don't want to pick on a city, but Kansas City, if it's a terrible airport to fly into. Which it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I've been there. <laughs> um, they're, they're not going to want to fly into that because it, but if they have to go to Kansas City, they're going to fly into that airport. Right. So the competition in the United States is between all of these local airports. Um, just a few of our airports, the, the international, the truly international ones, have to worry about the international competition. But again, 
so many people want to fly to certain of these places that they can kind of afford to be behind the curve. Mm-hmm. Um, I, oftentimes London has fallen behind the curve yeah. uh, because people want to go to London. Um, and, and things have to get pretty bad at Heathrow before they, you know, they do something about it. Um, same as in Paris, things have to get pretty bad at, at, at De Gaulle before they'll, they'll do something about it. We are doing something about it now at LaGuardia in the United States. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's mostly their local, but they've also upgraded over at JFK as well, you know, eventually, but yeah, we are often responding to what's happening elsewhere as those places are more aggressively trying to get people to come the united states kind of takes it for granted that people want to come yeah Um, oh i i I can talk about that forever um i actually got appointed to what uh, a committee in washington called brand usa uh, I, I served on the committee for the first year. It was signed as part of the Travel Promotion Act by President Obama back in 2010. And our mandate was to encourage international travel to the United States. First time it had ever been done. And I remember sitting in some of those meetings and we were just so arrogant, just assuming that everybody wanted to come to America. We learned some lessons the hard way. Not everybody wanted to come to America. Um in large measure because our news media is ubiquitous. And so they're picking up things from our news media, about maybe we don't, you know, we're unwelcoming to certain groups of uh, passengers, mm-hmm. whether it's from the Middle East or Europe or Asia, didn't matter. Um, and, and so we learned some painful lessons. And I wish I would, had still served on that committee, committee years later uh, because they've eventually started to put offices in foreign countries now so that they can actually talk directly to the locals about coming to America for a vacation. Yeah. Um, but that's a topic for another day. But yeah, again, that's just in the last 10 years. Yes. Yeah. But there's even any kind of recognition that the United States might actually have to do something to attract people to come to the United States. That's true. And by the way, it wasn't funded very well. It's a public private partnership between yeah. the, yeah, I think it was, uh, something along the lines of a 50, 50 split between local jurisdictions and the federal government in terms of, uh, uh, how much was uh, being applied to get those passengers here. And, yeah. um, and it was terrible because the smaller destinations obviously didn't get a piece of the pie. Right. And right. they didn't have the financial resources, not to mention the fact that certain destinations like New York City, uh, California, they already had uh, offices in many of these international destinations anyway. So it wasn't like uh, it was like the rest of America was catching up. So um on a macro level, I'm going to ask you to put on your futuristic hat here. What type of, I guess, uh, let me say this right. How do we rebuild airport infrastructure to be re- more responsive going forward? Um, you know, just imagine we're not in COVID anymore. It's, we're, we're in a post-COVID world. Where do we go from here? Because, you know, we all see the bottlenecks at airports around the world pre-COVID. It, it, coronavirus had nothing to do with this nonsense. So how do we fix some of this? Well, first saying that historians often make very bad profits. <laughs> Focus on the past. But um, the important thing is to learn the lessons from COVID. Learn the lessons from why did people stop flying. Um, and um, 
I mean, there's lots of reasons why people stop flying. They stop flying because there was nowhere to fly to. That's a big thing. You know, conferences got closed. Why would you go to Las Vegas um, if all of the casinos were closed? You know, why, why would you go there? All right. Um, but uh, for the airports themselves, I think that um, COVID is driving home that the idea of customer service, mm-hmm. yeah. that the airports need to be clean, that they need to be well staffed. Um, and that again, that these bottlenecks need to be taken care of. Um, long, long security lines are not going to be tolerated that, um, you know, crowded passageways are not going to be, uh, and big, long delays are just, people are not going to have the same patience for it, I think, uh, in the future. So again, American airports, I think, need to look to some of these things that have been done overseas um, with um, touchless technology, self-check-ins, AI, although, I mean, there's all kinds of problems with AI as well. Um, But, you know, facial recognition, which, again, is not perfect, but things that they can do to um, make the... um, make your movement through the airport as fast and efficient as possible. And that's always been the goal since we start, first started building airports in this country. It's getting people to and through as fast as possible. Um, I, a lot of smaller airports will often say, hey, come here instead of there because to and through is so much easier through us, right? Yep. Um, so to and through is going to be the byword for the future um, to get people onto airplanes, um, especially in the first years after this, because I, yeah. I suspect that um, fares are going to go up, that it's going to take a while for uh, the root structure to rebuild itself. People are not going to be, people are going to be more likely to fly if the experience is a good one from start to finish. And the start and the finish are always at airports. Um, and so the airports are going to have to up their game in a lot of ways to um, attract people so that it is not considered a hassle. Um, it is not considered a burden uh, to go out there and get on an airplane and, and fly. Uh, so, yeah, dealing with those bottlenecks, um, getting in more efficient technologies to to move people through their baggage through the themselves through um particularly the international airports uh you know customs and immigration um they've got to be well staffed um they've got to have the technology to to move people faster right it's interesting you say fears are going to go up Uh, yeah uh, how how do you balance or how do they balance fears f-e-r-e-s over F-E-A-R-S, fears. <laughs> yeah, the two things that have always kept people from flying, fear and fear. Um, but uh, again, while the government may need to have to support the airlines uh, financially in the short run, um, once the COVID crisis is over uh, and airlines are rebuilding themselves, uh, 
I, I, I don't see that financial aid continuing indefinitely. And so, um, again, they're going to have to think of their bottom line. And if fewer people are flying, um, they need more fare from each person um, to, to, to pay their bills. Right. Right. Um, and so I think that um, fare, fares are likely to go up at least short term after the crisis. Uh, fares are likely to get more expensive, especially to the places where most people uh, both want to fly, but also to smaller destinations that a lot of people don't fly to. Right. Um, it's going to get a lot more expensive to, to fly to those kind of places again. Yeah. Um, I, until the volume moves up, that will allow them to lower the fare. Because it's, it's all about load factor. High load factor, you can have lower fares. You know, th th this actually circles back to the question I asked you about building high-speed rail and taking some of the pressure off of the airlines, at least domestically. There's nothing you could do about it for the in international traveler, but at least domestically. Do you think we would benefit from less is more? Uh, I'm not one for anti-competition, but... Um, you know, having maybe only two or three air carriers, but having a solid infrastructure of high-speed rail, um, you know, would that take some of the pressure off of these airlines? Because I think they're trying to serve too many masters. You've got to pay for the landing right fees at this airport here, and then you got to pay for the landing right fees at another airport there, and then you got to deal with local municipality laws, like, yeah. you know, going to John Wayne Airport, you can't land after nine o'clock at night because of noise factors. There's just so many things the airlines are having to deal with uh, that are, are quite frankly, I don't know how they stay in business. I just don't. Yeah. Well, and, and we, we may see not all of them staying in business. Um, but we already have a lot fewer airlines than we have historically. True. Um, there's been tremendous, um, you know, consolidation and, and uh, in the airline industry. I mean, we used to have, you know, a dozen or more major carriers, and now we're down to, what, three, four? Mm -hmm. um, depending on how you want to count them. Um, I don't think it would serve passengers well if we get too few airlines because there is some competition there. Right, yeah. Um, but on the other hand, it would be, I think, good for passengers um, if the airlines in some of these markets had competition from high-speed rail. Yep, yeah. I totally agree. Um, I know we have kept you long past what I thought we were going to do, but this conversation <laughs> is so interesting. I can talk to you forever about this, and I'm going to make a request right now that I think Dave would agree with me. As we start to um, uh, figure out more about what's going on with air travel and COVID, and once we get past this, I would like to have you back just to you know, go through your urban planning background about how we can improve certain pieces of infrastructure, especially with the airline business, because that's what Dave and I do. We're travel people. Um, but they're just, the topic is so wide open, and I know we spent a lot of time talking about COVID, as we should, but there are other things that I would really like to address, and I would really, at some point, like to reach out to you again and have you come back. I am always happy to talk to anybody who's as 
enthusiastic about airports as I am. Uh, well, I, I've spent so much of my life in airports that I think, you know, we need to get this out there. You know, a lot of people don't understand how airlines work. They don't understand why their fares go up. They don't understand the matter of fact, most people don't understand how pricing works for an airline anyway, but they, they don't get how their bucket systems all work. And, and it, it's a tangled web. And, you know, you always hear all these prognosticators, good, you know, getting online. Well, if you book your airfare at midnight on Tuesday, the 1st of January, you'll get a cut rate discount, which is a bunch of hogwash because that's not how they, they do their fees. I mean, there's a small element of truth to that, depending on destination, but that's not how you find cheap airfare. Yeah. Um, well, everybody wants to game the system. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. So yeah. I, I do want to have you back. This is a very interesting conversation and uh, I, I think it's relevant. I think we really just need to start telling the truth about what's going on in our airline infrastructure. So maybe we can figure out a way to foster some change because change is needed. Is there any message you want to get out there? Any projects that you're currently working on? Uh, well, uh, not at the moment. No. Um, I, I, I have finished my two big books on airports. Um, so, uh, I'd like people to read those. My first book was <laughs> called America's airports, which, um, takes it up from kind of from world war two, uh, world war one to, um, uh, world war two, essentially up through 1945, which is kind of the establishment. And then, um, airport cities and the jet age takes it from World War II forward. Um, and so I've, I've kind of done the history of airports. I, I am going to uh, give a talk in Texas next year. It was supposed to be this year. <laughs> it's now going to be next year. Um, about why airports always seem to be under construction. Um, and, and it's a lot about this, this constant catching up and what is the future and, and, and always trying to be the most up to date and um, some of the competition that goes on. And so that's, that's what I'm working on right now is this talk in Texas on uh, why, when you go through airports, they always seem to be under construction. JFK has been under construction (laughs) from the 1970s. (laughs) A lot of it is just because air travel has expanded so dramatically say since the 1970s and deregulation, that a lot of airports uh, are just trying to keep up with capacity, um, keep up with the number of people who want to come through there. Um, And that's a lot of it. Um, um, And now on the other hand, some airports are trying to deal with um, lack of capacity. Um, As as the airlines consolidated and uh, closed hubs around the country, for example, Mm-hmm. Places like St. Louis, Cincinnati, and Pittsburgh yeah. are all dealing with how do you how do you you know right size a smaller airport, and that also involves construction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, your books, I'm assuming they're available on Amazon. Yes. Okay. And as regards to, uh, do you have your own personal website where people can learn more about you, or do how, how would one get a hold of you? They wanted to hire you as a speaker. Um, well, they could get a hold of me through the University of Dayton. Fair enough. I will leave it there. Dr. Janet Bittner, thank you so much for doing this. And we really, really appreciate your uh, insight into air travel. And uh, again, I hope you'll come back. I will. It was very delightful talking to both of you. All right. Thank, thank you so much. Very much. All right. Yeah. Thank you.